I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. Today on the podcast, we are lucky enough to host Jim Finley. Jim once lived as a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where the world-renowned monk and author Thomas Merton was his spiritual director. Now Jim leads retreats and workshops throughout the United States and Canada, attracting men and women from all religious traditions who seek to live a contemplative way of life in the midst of today's busy world. He's also a clinical psychologist in private practice with his wife in Santa Monica, California. He's author of Merton's Palace of Nowhere, The Contemplative Heart, and Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God. I first informally met Jim after he spoke at the 2015 Thomas Merton Society Conference and was awestruck by his words pointing to unity. I remember him vividly saying, Lovers cannot force the oceanic oneness, but can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the gift. And similarly... The poet cannot make the poem happen, but the poet can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the gift of the poem. As he expressed this nonlinear freefall and the importance of learning to rest in it, I knew I recognized something in his words that was deeply intertwined with the mystery. It is my honor and joy to welcome you, Jim, to both my home and the podcast. So we first initially typically ask is if you have any significant or potent encounter with silence perhaps as a child or when you first maybe recognizing silence as something of the mystery in your life? Well, I'd say first in my childhood, looking back, I would say that I, silence meant a great deal to me in how I learned to cherish uh, being alone. Mm. And I think that was uh, kind of um, honed for me because of the violence from the chaos from my father's alcoholism and the violence and chaos. So I think I sought refuge from the chaos. Mm. So in that way, I think I learned to cherish uh, being alone or being quiet. It felt safe for me. Yeah. And, uh, and I also think that's where when I started in high school, sitting at Mass, sitting after Mass in a great big a quiet church, at moments like mm-hmm. that. But I don't think it's till I got to the monastery that I consciously saw silence in a significant way. Yeah. Way. yeah. 
What was the initial thing that led you to the monastery? When I was in the ninth grade, uh, when all this violence was going on, I was I went to an all boys uh, Catholic high school in Akron, Archbishop Bogan High School. One of the instructors in a religion class uh, mentioned monasteries, and even though I was born and raised Catholic, my mother was a devout Catholic. I'd never heard of monasteries before, <laughs> and uh, and in talking about monasteries, he saw monasteries as a place where people go to have this deep experience of God, and because of what that meant to me, you know, I related to that. And then he mentioned Thomas Merton. I'd never heard of Thomas Merton before, so I went to the school library that day after school, and they had one book by Thomas Merton. And this was in the ninth grade. This is in the ninth grade. Okay. Yeah, it was a sign of Jonas. Mm-hmm. The, the journal that Merton kept in the monastery, and on the first page of the sign of that book, Merton says, "He says, as for me, I have but one desire: the desire for solitude, to disappear into the secret of God's face." And wow. at fourteen years old, uh, at one level, I did not know what that meant, <laughs> but at another level, something in me said, "Me too." Yeah. Like I knew it, and it named me. Yeah. That named me. So for the four years of high school, then, as the violence continued to worsen, actually, reading Merton every day kind of, you know, kept me tethered to God. It kept mm. me. And so as, as the four years of high school went on, that's when I began to feel more that I wanted. To, I wanted to go there, and I saw that I had a chance to sit at Merton's feet. He could guide me to this experience. So when I graduated from high school, that's what I did, I went. Mm. <laughs> so that's how I went. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and how long were you at the Abbey? I said six years. Six years, okay. Yeah, I, I was there in, I entered in 61, graduated from high school in 1961, I went right out of high school. Okay. And then I left, I think, in January of 67. Okay. Yeah. And Ner- uh, Merton was your... Yeah, yeah, what happened was is that then the monastery was divided into the choir monks studying for the priesthood and lay brothers. I was in the lay brothers. Then they changed me over to the choir. Mm. And when they changed me over to the choir, Thomas Merton was novice master of choir novices. A little later on, they merged the novitiates, so everyone was had one. He was novice master for everybody. So for your, when you first entered the Cistercian order, there was, I'm assuming it's the same now, I don't know. Uh, you were a postulant for six months. Leave any time you want. Mm-hmm. Then you're a novice for two years, and then if you discern and your spiritual directors discern, it's God's will for you to stay. Then you take vows for three years, and then you renew those vows one year at a time for three more years. Okay. Then if you still feel called to stay, you take solemn vows until death. Okay. So when I entered the monastery, then Thomas Merton, as master of novices, became my spiritual director because I was a novice under his direction. Mm-hmm. And so I saw him alone for one-on-one spiritual direction, maybe uh, about twice a month okay. on, and for about a three-year period. Yeah. I, stayed as long, I stayed on as long as I could in the novitiate after I took my vows to keep contact with him. Yeah. And then I moved over into the junior, to the simple professed place. Yeah. What was your most significant encounter with, with Merton? In terms of like, what's the, something that sticks out the most? I, I was recently reading in, um, oh, it, it was in Jim Forrest's book, uh, The Root of War's Fear, how he described him as just chuckling all the time yeah. and a man of true humor. 
He was. He's very funny. Kurtner's a very funny person. For me, what it was, what I tell people, there, there are two things that kind of come together. Is that when I went, when I first went in to see Merton, because of my trauma history, I had real issues with authority figures. Sure. And so he was an authority figure. I thought it was like sitting with Moses or something like that. He was numinous, you know. Yeah. So when I would try to talk with him. My voice would shake. Sure. I couldn't sure. Do it. I'd hyperventilate. Mm. And he asked me what was going on, and my voice was shaking. And I said, I'm scared because you're Thomas Merton. Mm. He said to me, and, and I think years later this led to me being a psychotherapist on the power of an intervention, how brilliant this was. Because I worked at the pig barn uh, on the farm. The mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, every day under obedience I want you to come in afternoon work before Vespers and tell me something that happened to the pig barn every day. And I can remember thinking, I can do that. And uh, I would come in from work early. I'd put on my monastic habit of going. I'd yeah. knock on the door. He'd be typing a book. He'd push the typewriter aside. <laughs> he'd sit down and he, mm-hmm. he would, you know, sound number eight did this and this. Sound number had her litter and I fixed the gate. And he, he listened to all this. He followed it. He asked me questions about it. And it leveled the playing field for me. Yeah. It was really, and I tell people, for all that I've learned from Merton in the books and so on, Really, what he taught me in inviting me to talk about the pigs is because that was compassion. Mm-hmm. See that we were just two men sitting in a room together talking about pigs. Yeah, and then that freed me up to tell him about my desire for God. How reading his book changed my whole life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me, uh, he said, once in a while you'll find somebody with whom you can talk about such things. He said, but they're hard to find. And he said, that's your solitude. And he really encouraged me to, I felt so radical about that, about the silence and the mystics. I started reading John of the Cross. Mm. And, and then he became for me, in a very classical sense, like guiding me in this contemplative lineage, this mystical lineage of my own Christian faith, open to all the lineages of the world religions. Mm-hmm. So he was that for me. He was a down-to-earth, earthy, real pope, no posing, no posturing. Yeah. Just real in a radical seeking, and that's what he was for me. And there's something very Zen actually about talking about the pigs. It is like the recognition of just seeing and it, it, there really letting is. pass. And there is. Hmm. And he and, and and one of the things that Merton would say, he said a lot of, he said there's a lot of Catholics losing their faith, and a lot of them are losing it in church, mm. because the church doesn't bear witness to its own mystical lineage, and they're mm. leaving it for. Uh, Raja Yoga and, and uh, Karma, you know, uh, Bhakti Yoga and Zen, and which he said, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But the great scandal is that the church would only bear witness to its own mystical lineage on the divinity of simple things. Mm-hmm. Do you know I mean on, on, the, yeah. on, the, on the holiness of uh, that the world is God's body because it bodies forth the love that's uttering it into being, every yeah. breath, every heartbeat. And that way he. That's what, that's the affinity that he saw between world religions at this contemplative level. Yeah. yeah. You reminded me of one of the things you say in Merton's Palace of Nowhere. Um, you talk about the concepts of defining and boxes we use to maintain, maintain control. And you say that we give God a name and then equate God with the name we have given him. And in doing so, we make ourselves, in effect, God's God. Instead of acknowledging God as the source of our identity and existence, we make ourselves the self-proclaimed source of God's identity. God then becomes 
the one made in our image and likeness, those engaged in the undertaking of naming God see themselves as participating in holy work. They are the God definers, the def definition makers. And one thing I love about this is I've recently kind of taken to this, this remembrance and importance for me in my life that, you know, God is not a boy's name and, and kind of releasing that. And I've been saying she a lot. Uh -huh. um, and that's been helping me essentially to elevate in order right. to equate and right. ultimately make God genderless as God is. Yeah. That being said, something amazing seems to happen in the spiritual life when we do release that control of defining and boxing. This is from Merton's Palace of Nowhere, page 14. Mm. So I'll read it and use it as a way to respond to the question yeah. about boxing God in. And yeah. Okay. And this, wait, this is Merton's words? This or? is Thomas Merton's okay. words. And then I'll comment on it. Okay. It's, he's praying. Mm. God, my God, God whom I meet in darkness. With you it is always the same thing, always the same question that nobody knows how to answer. Mm -hmm. I have prayed to you in the daytime with thoughts and reason, and in the nighttime you have confronted me, scattering thought and reason. I have come to you in the morning with light and with desire, and you have descended upon me with great gentleness, with most forbearing silence, in this inexplicable night, dispersing light, defeating all desire. I have explained to you a hundred times my motives for entering the monastery, and you have listened and said nothing, and I have turned away and wept with shame. Wow. Okay, here's how I, my understanding of this. When we get involved in spirituality, and we, uh, we're drawn to it, we tend to have a lot of questions. And that's why we tend to read spiritual books or watch podcasts. Or, and, and well, we should. Mm -hmm. and, and we should get spiritual guidance as well. But then, I think what Merton is reminding us of is as we get a little deeper, here we realize that it, it's not so much that we're the one asking the question, but God's asking the question. Mm. So that God's asking me a question. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. And I, I start to discover that not only do I not know the answer to God's question, I don't understand the question. Back in the good old days when I was holy, it was so clear. So I had all this <laughs> lined up, I had all this lined up. But then all of a sudden, and love found and love lost and birth and in death, you know, and, and the unfolding of things. Like I know not what to make of it. And so then the words of God move from definitions to poetic metaphors, like they explicate the mystery. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Another way I put it is that, say that when we don't know someone very well, how easy it is to say a lot about them. Let me tell you about mm. so-and-so because opinions are easy. Right. But when we've loved someone very deeply for a long, long time, we don't know what to say, really. And our heart breaks when we try. Mm. And no matter what we'd say, we, we would know it isn't what we know because you can't say it. Mm. And I think that's the falling away of uh, reference points as definitions for anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's mm. all still there. But it's, it's, there's a living word of the infinity of the unexplainable giving itself to us. Mm -hmm. See, and um, it's God. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, um, the potency of stripping ourselves of language. Yeah, yeah. in those moments. And, and I would also say, as a therapist, and also with, mm -hmm. with this, is that if we let it, it, it tends to happen if we don't fight it. 
you know, there's part of us that puts up tremendous, we're afraid to lose the control that we think that we have over the life that we think that we're living. That mm. all of a sudden you can turn a corner and the universe turns upside down. Yeah. You know, you're falling in love with someone who's falling in love with you, or you've lost love, sure. or you got a terminal diagnosis, or you, like all of a sudden, all the reference points up to that moment. See? Mm. And I think that's Exodus. I mean, that's Passover. That's, you know, that's uh, that's uh, handing it over. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, it gets radicalized. Mm-hmm. Poverty of spirit. You know, it's poverty of spirit. And I think that this is kind of the heartbeat of the mystical traditions and all the world religions. And Mert was such a had such a gift for bearing witness to it. You know, when I what I referenced earlier about what you said at the Thomas Merton Society gathering um, about assuming the stance that allows the least resistance for the poem, for the love. I think that I think this connects, right? I mean, it's still a a stripping of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's say, let's say that there, let's say there are moments where we're graced with this oneness. Mm You know, that, that it's, it's like a moment of momentarily resting in God, resting in us, alone in the middle of the night, or the arms of the beloved, or holding a child, or reading a poem, or in birth and death, however it comes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when it's actually happening, it, it's, it's, too, it's too self-evident to doubt. It's too deep to comprehend. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, I know not what to make of it. Mm. Too self-evident to doubt and too deep to comprehend. I cannot comprehend I love it. that. Thomas Merton once said, he said, there's certain things you simply have to accept as true or you go crazy inside. Mm-hmm. And they're the very things you can't explain to anybody, including yourself. Mm. Yeah. Dan Walsh used to say at the monastery, he taught medieval philosophy there. Uh, I, I know it. I know it. I know it. I know that I know it. But the trouble is, it's I who know that I know it. When I try to tell you what it is that I know that I know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> John of the Cross says, to have no light to guide you except the, except the one that burns in your heart. Mm. Like the intimacy of the unexplainable thing, like this. So, I, I, it's like homecoming. I rest in it. But it's elusive. You know, it's elusive. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I get fragmented again in the demands of the day. Sure. And I cannot make the moments of oneness happen. Yeah. But what I can do is assume the stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by what I cannot make happen. Hmm. And so whether it's lovers or poets or healers or anyone, and that's meditation practice. See, meditation is, is, is freely choosing the stance that offers the least resistance. Mm. Uh, it's like this talk we're having right now. I don't think anything anything's real here, unless together we assume the stance that offers the least resistance to being overtaken mm-hmm. by what we can't make happen, namely through these words bearing witness to what words can't say. Mm. You know? But there'll be intimations of it, yeah, you know, in the authenticity of our dialogue here. Um, and I, I can't help but see also, you know. Merton's revelation at Fourth and Walnut in this too, right. as you know, this is something that not only happens as the as a singular or as you know between lovers, but I can see that as like humanity because ultimately, when you expressed this, when I first heard you express this, um, the importance of that inner stance, it really struck me as a deepening of of my common humanity. Right. 
Yes, you know, the story of Merton, where he had to, he had to go into Louisville for medical treatments. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's waiting for the red light to change at an intersection. Mm-hmm. And he says all of a sudden he loved all those people. And there's this tradition of monasticism, this contemptus mundi, which is contempt of the world, mm. which is understood in terms of s- separation from the world through cloister. Mm. But Merton saw that the, the authentic separation of the world at one level is only to be more radically accessed by it at a deeper level. Mm. Once I wanted to see Merton <clears throat> worried about something, I forget what it was. He said, you know, I was complaining about something. <laughs> you know, worried about whatever it was, about the pig barn or chanting vespers. I don't know what, things that monks, <laughs> the monks were, you know, life goes on mm-hmm. and you're just living your life in it. And uh, he said to me, you know, he said, we, he said, we didn't come here to breathe some rarefied air beyond the suffering of this world. He said, we came here to experience the suffering of the whole world in our hearts. He said, otherwise there's no validity in living in a place like that. Mm. I was so struck by that. See, mm-hmm. that sometimes we withdraw at one level, but only to be more interiorly accessed at a deeper level. So the world lays claim on our heart. This is Christ consciousness mm-hmm. in a world. See? Mm-hmm. So there's this essential bond. Then, the, the authenticity of the, of the mystical oneness manifests itself in the inner necessity of the response of social justice and the corporal works of mercy. So the whole energy field that moves to visit the sick and educate and all, all that really ideally at least mm-hmm. flows from this so the action in the world and the surrender to God mutually keep reinforcing each other mm. you know as this as the Christian life is a spiritual life yeah. yeah yeah that reminds me of just also just that that perplexity and the paradox of going away from the world in order to love the world more and I think the spiritual life calls for us all to do that in some capacity, not just going to the cloistered monastery, right? But right. I think also, I, I know that you, you lead centering prayer and, and things like this, and I think there's a meeting place in the silences and solitudes, um, but our world sees that as such a paradox. They don't see it as a deepening of, of love for the world. And I want to quote, your, um, in Christian Meditation, your book Christian Meditation, um, you talk about befriending our perplexity. Yeah. You say, the truth is that we can venture into meditation only in our willingness to be at times perplexed. What is more, we must be willing to befriend our perplexity as a way of dying to our futile efforts to grasp the ungraspable depths that meditation invites us to discover. Well, first, I, I first I want to ask, how do you see how perplexity and paradox are related and how does one explain that sometimes going away is loving the world more in some way? Right. And is that necessary to explain to people? I would say it's, um, it's important for each of us as best, our, as best we can to take to heart to how this pertains to us. Mm. See, and this pertains to me. Where that line comes from about perplexity, by the way, I, when I was doing some reading in Martin Heidegger, Okay. In time. And he's quoting one of the pre-Socratic philosophers before mm. Socrates, early. And the, the, the quote is, he said, we used, to, we used to think that we understood what the word being meant. 
<laughs> but for quite some time now, we have become perplexed. Mm. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> See, back in the good old days when we were holy, I thought, you know, <laughs> all this is pretty long. <laughs> but for quite some time now, yeah. you know, um, mm. the enigmatic nature of it all starts to unfold. So what it is, I think, is we were brought to a point of realizing we lack within our present understanding how we can truly understand what's happening to us. See, like something's happening to me, you know, through love or through surrender, through like through life, like something's there's an unfolding that's happening. Yeah. And all my internalized assumptions up to this moment do not serve as the basis from which to adequately understand what's happening. I think that's also mm -hmm. what solitude is. Mm -hmm. See, solitude is we're less and less able to explain to anybody, including ourselves, what's happening to us. And that's where, then, I think God becomes real to us as God. See, this is the, the numinous presence that leads. I will lead her into the desert and speak to her heart. Mm. Yeah. And I also think it's a big deal, I mean, core of a, like the story of Moses in the burning bush. Because he's uh, as a kind of a metaphor for life, they're in a state of captivity, and he's out walking along, and he sees this uh, bush burning, and uh, but the burning bush doesn't burn up, so it doesn't fall within the laws of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. He knows not what to make of it, mm -hmm. and it's in that he hears the voice, "Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground." <laughs> right, and uh, mm -hmm. and that, and that's unknowing. See, that's the perplexity, is the willingness to be humbled and the ability to have closure in your own concepts in order to have a deeper way to understand what it means to understand. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And then at a second, at another level, that can wash back over you as ways to put words to that, which is spiritual direction or the yeah. spiritual, it puts words, it's a language that bears witness to this so that when you're reading it, your heart recognizes what the words are about. Mm -hmm. It isn't defining or explaining anything. It's kind of bearing witness to the unfolding of something. And in That's a how I see it. Yeah, in a sense, it, it it's kind of begins in the silence and the solitude. It and does. Contemplative spaces. It does. Because it's like you read it and you you you, you stop short. Do I mean you mm -hmm. you can't read on without skimming over what you're reading. Mm -hmm. You have to pause to let the reverberations of what you just read do a number on you. Yeah. You have to let it kind of... And, the, and Merton called this spiritual communication. See, that's contemplative Lexio Divina. Is this deep kind of... It's, it's like language in the service of the unsayable. See? Yeah. yeah. And I found in my experiences of of those moments, certainly I've seen no burning bush or anything, but... Yeah. There's still not a certitude, but a deep knowing. I don't know how to explain that, but yeah. how I put it, it yeah. how I put it, it's an obscure certainty in our hearts. Mm, I like that. It's an obscure certainty. Yeah. See, it's 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 a, it's a certainty that I can't explain. Yeah. But I I know that if I walk away from it, I'll lose my way. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's yeah. how I put it. It's it's very. It's like the interiority of discipleship. It's kind of a. Mm -hmm. It's like that, I think. And words fail us. They do, <laughs> but but then you can sit with somebody with whom to share it, and you can tell they know what you're talking about. Mm. Do you know what I mean mm -hmm. that, they, that mm -hmm. people 
we recognize each other in the, in the, in the language because we, we, we know what we're alluding to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is all reminding me of another quote from um, Merton's Palace of Nowhere. When you say, How strange God's ways are. He calls us into union we do not understand. He calls us to a place of encounter which we cannot find. We search and search. Our silence reveals to us not a garden of delights, but awful nothingness. <laughs> God leaves us in an awful emptiness. All our initial enthusiastic notions of prayer deteriorate into an acknowledgement of our utter superficiality and lack of authenticity before God. We can only throw ourselves completely on his mercy. We can only wait in the darkness and cry out for salvation. This, this deep gnaw that you express in these spaces, I think, is just... I love the words you use to, to express that. Yeah. Here's how I put it. I think everyone... For each of us, there's moments in which this is true for us. Mm-hmm. And then what the mystics do is the mystics point out the boundaryless nature of that, so mm. which is the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how I put it as a concrete example is to imagine you've, you find yourself lost in a darkness. The, there, you're in the midst of a darkness in which you've lost your way in your own life. So you're just kind of lost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Then you discover if you don't panic, if you don't panic, you thrash around. That's that's hard for me. It's really hard <laughs> because you're scared. Yeah. You're scared because it's imminent annihilation. You know, you're, there's a. It, it can be traumatizing. It can, it can be a source of. You can be traumatized. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but if you don't, but if you don't panic, if you don't panic. You can start to discover that you're not alone. You know? And in some ways, the poetic language of this. That, that a presence has come in looking for you, mm. unfelt and unseen, or it was there all along, but in your panic you couldn't see it. <clears throat> mm. And that presence doesn't take the darkness away, yeah. but rather it illumines the interiority of the preciousness of your own wounded heart. See, mm. That somehow the, the ragged edges of the painful woundedness are the configurations of the grace that finds you. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like experiential self-knowledge. Yeah. And then when you follow that out of the darkness into the light, uh, you're, if you come out the other side, like you're so you're so grateful. You know, you, you found your way back out again, because you might not have. Yeah. But you're even more grateful that in your darkest hour something was given to you. It can change your life forever. Mm-hmm. That's that's to me how I see it. You know I mean? Do you have any tips for not panicking? Yeah, well... <laughs> in those kinds of situations? I say this now as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Two of this where the two touch each other, I think. Mm-hmm. Spiritual direction, therapy. See, I say that the trauma... The trauma... The Greek word... comes from the Greek word meaning a wound. is a mm. trauma. So, let's say you're going down the street at night and alone, and you turn a corner and someone pushes a gun into your stomach. That horrible, horrible moment, you know they're gonna pull the trigger is trauma. Trauma is being powerless to establish a boundary between yourself and that which is about to or already is inflicting serious harm or even death. It's psychic death. See, like I'm, mm. I'm being undone. I, we can tolerate anything as long as the center holds. Where it gets really scary is where the center starts to break open. Mm. See? You know, and I start to lose myself. Mm-hmm. See? That's trauma. So 
One, we need to always practice nonviolence to be sure a nurturing, protective person for ourselves and others. Insofar as we've, we've had to endure being traumatized, we have to do our best to get our footing again, mainly by talking or sharing with some, something to help us keep our balance in the pain, to find our way out again. Mm -hmm. So I would say the first step is always safety first, that whatever it takes yeah. for self-soothing, regroundedness, to create a context to, to understand what's happening by sharing whatever, that, whatever the realities are. Okay. Then, having done that, then knowing that in that grounded place to turn toward the scary place and to touch it with love. See, how to move in close. If you move in too fast, you'll get re-traumatized. Mm -hmm. If you never go near it, it festers. One Zen master once said, get too close to my fireplace, you burn to death. Get too far away, you freeze to death. Mm -hmm. so if we never go near it, it festers on and on and on. But if we don't respect how powerful it is, we can burn to death. Mm. The art form of patiently drawing close to the hurting place to touch it with love. And I think this is experiential salvation. See, I think it's the mystery of the cross mm. in our heart. This is to be tender-hearted toward the hurting place. See? Mm. Over time, whatever that is that we're going through, through the abandonment or the betrayal or the fear, it isn't just we come out the other side in a broader, better place. But we discover we were transformed in the process. You know? yeah. And it really led us to the inner richness of what it means that God's present in our life. So, yeah. yeah. AA, a lot of AA, I just did a retreat uh, for CAC for Center Action Contemplation as a core teacher of this mm. with Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bergeau on mystical sobriety, on the mystical mm. dimensions of the 12 steps of AA. And, oh, wow. Uh, and because, see, this is, this, is what, this is what recovery is all about. See, we admit, see, we admit that we're powerless over alcohol, mm -hmm. uh, and that our lives have become unmanageable. Mm. But the very act of admitting, the very thing the alcoholic is so terrified to do, namely admitting they can't stop what's destroying them, mm -hmm. is the very thing in the act of admitting it in a company of broken people, changes your whole life. Yeah. And I think it's just one modality of something that's universally true This goes on in getting married or not married, or being a mother or not a mother, a father or not a father, being well or sick. You know, this is the riddle of um, transformation in our life. You know? mm. And Merton is, the whole contemplative interior path is the richness of what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Wow. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please, take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. In your own life, the trauma that you've experienced, you, said, you mentioned earlier as, as a child, how do you think people can, can harness those experiences while they're happening or as they're happening? I, I mean, you mentioned you know, that was a time when you found the silence and solitude as, as kind of this safety. What would you say to that? 
Well, let's say, first of all, I'm talking to someone who has been traumatized. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing about trauma is that the traumatizing event can come and go. Mm -hmm. But the intensity of the traumatizing experience refuses to politely go away. Mm. And it's lodged in our body. Yeah. And every time we experience something that reminds us of the trauma, an authority figure, someone wants to get close to us, whatever it is, re it reactivates the trauma. Right. The post-traumatic stress disorder is this, is, is triggering events that keep reactivating mm -hmm. this core thing that lives on like this. So what I tell people in that thing, right now, by the way, I'm working on a book on this too. On, oh. On... Um, until the dimensions of healing. Okay. But what I tell people is that the root issue is not what was done to me, which is terrible enough. I was incested, I was beaten, I was mm -hmm. betrayed, I was whatever. The deeper issue is what was done to me did to me. Mm. And it left me like this. Mm. And you, it takes courage to let another person see you that way, mm -hmm. where you're crying or see what I'm like. Yeah. You know, see what I'm like. This is the me that I try to let nobody see. Because I can't stand it either. Mm. And so the first thing I tell people is that as terrible as that was that happened, and as terrible as it is what it did to you, it's very hard to live this way. There's something in you that's bigger and more real or you wouldn't be here. The very fact you're here to tell the story is there's something in you that's bigger than that story. Mm. See? And really it's the story of this grace dimension of your life. Thomas Merton once said that there's that in us that is not subject to the brutalities of our own will. Mm. See, no matter what anyone does to us, this is that in us that no one can do anything to because it belongs completely to God. And I would add, it isn't subject to the brutalities of our own will because we ritualistically reenact upon ourselves what was done to us. Mm. It belongs invincible, indestructible, and undiminished, buried under the rubble of the internalized trauma story is the, is the God-given, godly nature of ourselves sustained by God. See, mm -hmm. So I say that God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. Mm -hmm. See, God clearly did not protect me from that terrible thing. God didn't. God, look at the cross, the mystery of the cross. See? But God unexplainably sustains me mm -hmm. up to and beyond death. So that's what I tell people. I say, you know, first of all, uh, what makes it safe to talk about all of this is knowing as terrible as it is, there's something bigger than you, than all the terrible things, which is the preciousness of who you are risking to tell me about them. Because mm. the trouble is we think we are what's wrong with us. It's the idolatry of shame. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. This yeah. is at the heart of the miracle stories in the gospel, too. Yeah. What's, what's the new book? There's, I did an audio set with Carolyn okay. Mace uh, with Sounds True on okay. Transforming Trauma. Okay. And I'm writing it now, and I got a grant through Fetzer Institute. There's audio talks on my website. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, th those are transcribed, and I'm writing it now as a book. It's not really clear at this point who's going to publish it. Okay. And also, uh, in September, I think it is, my website, contemplativeway.org, is going to be more actively integrated into Center for Action and Contemplation website. Oh, okay. So people can see my videos and stuff, yeah. you know, integrated that way. And so one of the subsets uh, of that website is uh, the healing of trauma, the contemplative dimensions of the healing of trauma. Got it. 
One thing I tell people, I says, I think that we we can't with integrity claim to be on a spiritual path and turn our back on the suffering of this world. Mm. But how do we open our heart to the suffering of the world without being traumatized by the suffering of the world? Mm. See, it's a traumatized and traumatizing world. And I think sometimes we pretend we care less than we do because if we let ourselves openly care, it sweep us away. Yeah. See? So how, what's the art form of sinking the taproot of the heart in this invincible love? Mm. Because it's the courage to walk how do I learn to be a healing presence in a traumatizing world? I think it's a relevant question for all of us today. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Especially in the political climate we live in and yeah, really. um, all the things happening every day. Really. Yeah. Because it's so easy to get lost in the, in the energy field of all that. The cynicism of it is disheartening. Yeah. But what, what, what does it really mean to be a contemplative clinician? What does it mean to be a contemplative politician? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a contemplative mother or father, to be a contemplative old person, yeah. to be a contemplative patient in a hospital? What does it mean to be a spiritually grounded, vulnerable human being? Mm. You know, And that's what all these teachings are about, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then silence, see, is the kind of, I think silence, and in the light of this whole talk, mm-hmm. is that what silence does is, so let's, say, let's say we've been following the cadences of this dialogue. And then we say, but in order to let it sink in to make a difference, I have to pause to let it sink in. Yeah. And that's silence. See, I have to stop the momentum of the insights to let myself be intimately accessed by the beauty of the insights. I mean, even with me needing you to repeat a few things, and then also I'm sure you've caught how we're looking at one another, but then when you're saying something that I'm, I'm trying to take in, I keep looking away yeah, to take it yeah. in, to remove a sense that's right. of mine in order to capture it in exactly. my heart. See, and that's silence. See, that, that, it's like an intimate exchange between two people like this, in mm-hmm, a way. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens then in the flow of the conversation is that there are, there's like the interior silence, which is the pause. Mm. Uh, Rollo May has an essay called The Pause, an existential psychologist, Rollo May. And he says, you know, if you look at a high diver, an Olympic high diver, he said when they're on the platform, he said, just before they dive, they pause. And they dive out of the pause. And it's the pause that makes the dive eloquent. Mm. If they'd be up there going, the cameras are watching, their ego would dive. You know, you're like, oh my God. I we know I how that will go. Yeah, really, not well. So you have to get very, like that. And then out of that, see, so can I become so silent that mm. I can hear God speaking into being? See, can I become so silent that I can let the, that what I'm listening to is beautiful and it's beautiful because it's true. See? And can I pause to let it soak in, to lay claim on me? Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's contemplative Lexio Divina. I mean, that's... Yeah. You know, then you carry that out through your day. Right. Yeah. Wow. I have a few more questions, uh, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Okay. How has silence impacted your work? One thing I found interesting is when we were planning this this interview, you had mentioned that you have a, a, a typical set time for writing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how silence has been implemented into your life as a practice. Well, 
I'll, I'll explain it in therapy first. Okay. I was in therapy with people. In my own therapy, when I was going through my therapy too, it was the cables were turned. Yeah. And then I applied to my writing and how I live it. See, here's, here's how I put it with, with the depth dimension of healing. Let's say you come to see me for psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And let's say I don't know what you want to talk about, other than the little bit you maybe told me on the phone setting up the appointment. <clears throat> but I've already done it so often with so many people I already know in advance what's going to have to happen if the healing you're hoping for is going to occur here's what's going to happen it's like a liturgy in a way mm. well, you'll show up we'll both sit down you'll talk and I'll listen and at a certain point I'll say to you you know in order to understand better what you're saying I have a question and it's not a trick question it's a real question and the question is such then in order to respond, you have to pause for a moment to listen to yourself. That moment you pause to listen to yourself, you're becoming more present to yourself in my presence. Mm. That moment of being present to yourself in my presence is the beginning of a bond between us that got broken in the trauma. Yeah. The interconnect, the unbreakable interconnectedness with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we and then we, we listen together to your disclosures with respect. And we dialogue back and forth. And then I say, oh, I have another question. And you have to pause, you listen. And we'll get closer and closer to the hurting place. And we'll know we're getting close because you'll tear up or you'll look away. You kinda of, and then I say, you know, if we don't go near it we can't heal it. But if we move too fast if we move too fast, you'll get re-traumatized. And there's a very protective part in you that will shut this down. Mm, yeah. And therefore, I have to know you have a partner here. I have to help you listen to yourself. So if the fear gets too strong to overtake the process, we need to protect the work. And you'll get better and better at understanding your own boundaries, which will strengthen your confidence, which will strengthen... It is safe to can I be vulnerable and safe at the same time? See, do I have a right to do that or not? And as we get deeper and deeper and deeper, we'll discover in the center of the wound the divinity that's been sustaining you in it. See? Like that. Wow. Now now, so then let's say let's just say that's what goes on in prayer. Very you know, the modalities are different. Mm-hmm. So for me what I do, I get up maybe five, six o'clock. And I usually write for six hours. And I either I'm either uh, working on a text, a classical text of a mystic like Eckhart's sermons or something. Or I'm trying to write a book. And how do I find the words that would help people access more clearly? And I write first with a fountain pen longhand, then I go to the computer. Mm. I might literally spend three months on one page writing it over and over and over and over and over. It wakes me up in the middle of the night, I write in the dark, mm. I get back up, I start again. And then all of a sudden, 20 pages will come out. So unless, wow. I, unless I'm willing to not be able to do it, that in me that wants to speak through me can't use me for its own purposes. You're assuming the inner stance. Yeah, I'm assuming the inner stance. And so, and I think that's the difference between art and crafts. See, crafts, if you follow the instructions and put the colored yarn in all the numbered holes, you get a windmill every time. <laughs> you know, can't go wrong. Yeah. But Roland May wrote a book called The Courage to Create. See, The Courage to Create is the crest of the wave of the intimacy of the unforeseeable. See? 
and God's the infinity of that. Mm. And uh, so for me, that's what I do, and it helps me. I the writing is a good I don't know, just it's a good discipline for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Do you have any silence heroes or hero? I would say uh, yes. I, I would, in one sense, I'd say Merton was my primary. Also, I think of the monastery, this cloistered monastery. There's just some, some profoundly silent people there. You know, just silent. Also, what, and what years were you there? 61 and 67. Okay. I show this quote that Merton says, he sold it. He said, we all came to this monastery with high hopes. And we're all walking around disgruntled. Because once you get in here, you discover half the people in here are crazy. <laughs> Cloistered neuroticism, you know, really just like there's people in there. Yeah. <laughs> You're one of them. He said, but then you see one of those old, then you see an old lay brother coming towards you down the cloister like a transparent child. Mm-hmm. And you know he found what you came here looking for. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. That is beautiful. And see, that's what we all are. And that's what we're afraid to be. See, we are that. Yeah. We're all, it's like we're, we're terrified of what we're looking for. Yeah. yeah. The way I put it too, Merton said, how I put it, in effect, Merton is saying to God, we tell God, you know, Lord, this mystical union with you, I, I really, really mean it. I, I want to really, I really, really want this under one condition. That when I cross the finish line into mystical union, my ego will remain intact. And I'll get to become a mystic, and I, I'll get to become a mystical ego, and finally get the respect I deserve. <laughs> but Merton says God isn't handing out any deals in this operation. <laughs> you know, we're always trying to salvage yeah. some little piece of what compromises our heart. Yeah, and that's what we hand over to grace. See, I think that's the gift of tears. See, then God mm. comes and takes us to Himself or herself mm-hmm. in our inability to do it. Because we're all God's loving us through and through and through and through and through and through in our inability to do it, not hoping and waiting that someday we'll figure out how to do it. See, it's already given. Mm-hmm. It is consummated. Mm-hmm. And even though on some level we know it's true, there's there's a, there's a part of us that's uh, holds back. Yeah. And that's the human story right there. Yeah. Right. Right. What does it look like to? I mean, we talked earlier about about letting go and everything, um, but we're more specifically talking about words and definitions. But to really be a vulnerable, open person, what does that look like? I mean, I can't. Well, for me, the times where I get to that place, it's like you were kind of saying earlier. It's it's the way of tears. It's um, well, I, I think this. Uh, I think this applies to also to ministry or to just mm. being with or to families. And so mm-hmm. I'll give an example. During my doctoral work, I did an internship at a VA hospital. Mm. I had to do a psychological tests for depression, anxiety, so on people coming in. And there was someone who had come in, I had to do a mental status exam mm-hmm. on a man who had a stroke. Mm. And uh, this man was a minister and a scripture scholar, Hebrew and Greek, and so on. I read his chart and all this. Wow. So when I went into the room to see him, he was sitting up in bed, kind of distinguished-looking guy with white hair. I said, I'm, I'm here. I introduced myself. I started to ask you some questions. I said, what year is this? 
And he went, oh, oh, oh yeah. And I said, you know, what's next? Said, you know, who's president of the United States? Oh. And on the fifth question, uh, he started crying. And he said, look what's happened to me. And he said, just before you came in here, I went to bed. And here's a scripture scholar doesn't know what year it is. And I could tell I was in the presence of God. See, I'm in the presence of God. We can feel when we're in the presence. You know what I mean? You can feel. When you're, and sometimes it doesn't have to be dramatic in families. If, if we calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale, out of the corner of your eye, you can catch that moment, you know, that little yeah. moment yeah. where the person is just looking at you through the crack in the door. You know? And so the more I think we're the more we befriend that vulnerability in us, mm. the more attuned we can be to be sensitized to it and be someone in whose presence is safe to risk it. Yes, you know? right. And I, I think that's the essence of ministry or the essence of mm -hmm. uh, it's the hope of the world, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Are there any books or poems or poetry that you might suggest or any authors that really you, you know what we could do on your website I'll mm -hmm. give you uh, on my website contemplativeway.org I had a newsletter okay and I told people it was a and people can sign up for the they newsletter they can sign up for the newsletter and that okay. way they can keep posted at contemplativeway.org contemplativeway.org okay and I tell people that it's, it was a monthly newsletter that came out three times a year because I have issues, <laughs> which is true. It's terrible. I just, my mind is not, I don't think that. I, just... I, have, a, I have a friend whose newsletter always starts with infre infrequent updates. That's right. <laughs> so I think when, well, I think when, as a core teacher for Center of Action Contemplation now, that they'll be more actively helping me. Okay. They'll be more consistent. Sure. But anyway, there's the, there's the archives of the previous newsletters, and one of them I gave a suggested reading list for beginners. Okay. Because these teachings of the mystics are very um, rich, but they're not easy. They can be disheartening. They're not always attain, uh, accessible. That's right. As, as and so the, the key is to find works that make them accessible. Yes. And uh, so I think uh, Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere I did with Tammy Simon. In Christian Meditation I did with Sanstro. And then with The Living School, with Richard Rohr, I did Intimacy, the Divine Ambush, and John of the Cross, mm -hmm. with Richard. And I did Following the Mystics of the Narrow Gate, which is mystical teachings with Richard. And I just recently did with them, they haven't posted it on the internet yet, on Teresa of Avila, the Interior Castle. Mm. And then Mystical Sobriety I just did. So if they get on the website and sign up for the newsletter, Mm -hmm. They'll kind of be posted on ongoing resources. Okay. And likewise, when the healing book's more available, <clears throat> there's more suggested yeah. readings if they want to pursue that. Okay. And there's also some clinicians that are working with me uh, for trauma survivors, and uh, those are clinicians who want to, like the contemplative dimensions of being a healer. Mm -hmm. They're forming study groups around the country. People want to get together. And, and deepen that dimension of healing. So that that'd be the answer. They go to the website contemplativeway.org, sign up for the newsletter, and then I'll give you the, the the archived newsletter that has a suggested reading list. Okay. And you can post that, and they can have it that way. Okay. Right. If the people listening today were only going to read one of your books, which one would you pick? I I I'd, I'd say Merton's Palace of Nowhere. Okay. Probably. Because, I mean, this idea for Merton, his idea of articulating 
the mystery of ultimate identity. Mm. That my personality is my external self. It's provisional, it's real. In relative consciousness, it's real. Mm -hmm. But who does God know me to be, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe? See? Can I join God in who God knows me to be? And he called that the true self. Yeah. Richard Rohr wrote a book to on the true self. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a theme that, it's a way to articulate the mystical lineage of the tradition, mm -hmm. really. And so, in a way of nothing else, Merton's Palace is a, a kind of a collection of Merton quotes on uh, the true self and identity. So, I, I say that would be a place to start. Mm. And if they were going to start with Merton, his book, uh, Thoughts in Solitude, mm. thin little book, yes. real short, yes. very accessible, yes. quite charming. And also, the, the intimate Merton, which are journal entries. Mm. And some of his most touching stuff are in the journal entries. Mm. So, the intimate yeah. Merton and Thoughts in Solitude, and then you could go from there. Yeah. 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 Well, Jim, it has been such a joy and honor to have you on. You know, what's interesting is we opened with you talking about the first Merton book you read, which was uh, Sign of Jonas. Yeah. And you talked about just kind of that recognition of the mystery in his language, but still kind of yeah. not uh, unsure, not knowing what it was. And I, I have to admit that everything I have read of yours, everything I've heard of yours, has that same deep interconnectedness yeah. with mystery and yeah. is just a place of deep recognition for me and I just I love your work I love yeah. your speaking and, and it was so great to have you on today yeah. hey, because uh, when I saw the nature of what you're doing I so believe in it mm. that you were of one mind here yeah and uh, thank you I think it's kind of the, the, the grace of uh, the internet really is, is forming interconnected yeah by monastery and cyberspace kind of thing yeah and so this is I mean, it's just great work that you're doing, so I'm glad we can kind of merge like yeah. this. So it's nice, yeah. And it's funny that we found out we live pretty close together. Yeah, we're neighbors too, <laughs> besides. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. <laughs>